This is Ethan Levy, and you're listening to Quarter Spiral's Game Dev Life Podcast. The story of game designer Max Temkin is the story of the internet itself. Although his game dev life is largely defined by the breakout success as one of the eight team members behind Cards Against Humanity, it is not his first project to go viral. Max's first outing as a game developer was as one of the people behind the large-scale, real-world game Humans vs. Zombies. Born on a college campus around the ascension of Facebook, this inventive take on Nerf gun tag took campuses by storm, spreading not unlike the zombie plague at the core of its narrative. Although we grew up just blocks away from each other in suburban Chicago, and our little brothers were close friends, this interview was the first time I had a chance to talk to Max about his two teams' successes as game developers. Max, for uh, people who don't know you, what are you known for on the interwebs? Uh, well, I'm primarily known for making uh, two uh, games. Uh, the first is called Humans vs. Zombies, which is a big game of tag. Uh, and the second one is called Cards Against Humanity, which is a party game for horrible people. Yes, and just a breakthrough success on uh, Cards Against Humanity. What's funny is uh, we grew up about a block from each other. Yeah. Went to the same high school. I was a chubby kid with a trench coat in high school. Did you have a trench coat also? I did not have the trench coat, okay. but the rest of it. The rest of it. Perfect, yeah. Got it. I just got the formula wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell my mom, I'm like, I've been slaving away at this for 10 years, and Max is probably one of the most successful game designers I know of, so. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, bet you, I bet you met some uh, very successful people at uh, EA. Yeah, I do know a couple people who own multiple houses and like their own jets. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cards isn't doing. Cards isn't quite at that level yet. You're not. You're not at jet level yet. Right. I just want to talk to you about kind of your history as a game developer. If I remember right, your first game was Humans vs Zombies, which is a real world game. What was the genesis of that? Humans vs Zombies started in college. Uh, some of my friends, uh, Chris Weed and Brad Sappington, had walked to the Target near our campus and like bought all these Nerf guns and brought them back and. They were just sort of like, you know, they had they had some nerf battles and they were just trying to think like, I wonder what's a way to like organize this to get a bunch more people interested in like having a nerf battle. And then they also had this idea of like, it'd be really funny to see one kid being chased by 50 kids across the quad. Um, so they started putting together this game uh, idea, Humans vs. Zombies, and it sort of went through a couple different iterations and tests. And they went across the school when they when they sort of had the formula right and put up these flyers all over. And uh, I got interested and played in the first game. It was tons of fun. It was the first semester of my freshman year, so it was tons of fun. It sort of taught me my way around the school because you're 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 running around from people trying to hide from zombies, trying to get strategically like high ground, uh, not be detected. You know, all of the the sort of like like classic like you know battle strategy things. Uh, so I learned my way around campus really well from the game. And I also met, like, almost all my friends in college from that first game of Humans vs. Zombies. Because you're in this very... You know, it feels very real. You're in the, you're mm-hmm. playing this this real-life game of tag, and uh, you kind of know it's a game, but everyone takes it very seriously, and uh, it, it really is kind of, like, meaningful when you're trying to survive with someone or someone, like, gets your back or you save someone's life in the game. It, it creates, like, a real friendship with that person. 
So um, You know what's real cool about that idea is that I've always felt like Nerf guns are this toy that when you're a kid and you see them on TV, it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. But then once you get it in the real life, they're not well, fun at all. That's what's so cool about, about humans versus zombies. You know, what's disappointing about Nerf guns is like, first of all, as a kid, you're physically limited by where you're allowed to go and what your body is able to do. And as a college kid, you're much more, you can run for a long time and... You can go anywhere you want, right? Like you have more autonomy. And what's great about Humans vs. Zombies is it brought all these players to the table. The game makes it really fun to play as a zombie. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, maybe I should like back up and say a little bit how the game yeah, works. Yeah, explain so, how it works. Um, so basically, everyone starts off as a human. Humans have uh, Nerf guns to defend themselves. And one player is randomly chosen as an original zombie. And the original zombie is disguised as a human, but they go around uh, tagging humans and turning them into zombies. Then those zombie players play like openly as zombies and they wear headbands around their head and they just try to kind of work together as a team and swarm the humans and tag them and turn everyone into zombies. So the humans can defend themselves by shooting a zombie with a nerf gun that stuns them for five minutes and uh, the game is over for the zombies when they tag and eat all of the humans and it's over for the humans if they can outlast the zombies. Mm -hmm. The zombies have to feed, they have to eat a human every 48 hours or they starve and they're out of the game. Almost always the zombies just destroy the humans mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of like a survival scenario so I imagine that when the humans survive it feels really good it's, sometimes it's anticlimactic because mm-hmm. it's like the humans can survive so what we discovered was you know the first few games it was really fun everything worked how we how we, we sort of expected it to and then the humans developed this strategy of like they just hole up in their dorm rooms they would like buy like rations and they would never leave and the zombies could never get them and they did win <laughs> some games like that and it was not fun. It was, like, super anticlimactic. Like, everyone was mad. And, you know, it was right. like... These, everyone was, hated those kids who did that. But it was like, they didn't care. They won the game. You know, right. they didn't care if they sacrificed all of their, like, social relationships. Uh, so then what we did was we created uh, missions. So we started designing these activities where, like, every day the humans would have to do this very difficult mission. And there would be penalties for them if they didn't do it. The zombies would become more powerful. We would randomly turn some of the humans into zombies. Things like that. That added like a more of a time frame, and and we started thinking about the game more as like active game designers of like how do you make sure that these teams are balanced? How do you make sure that everything gives the players a choice at every junction? By the time we graduated, we we had gotten pretty good at creating these missions and stuff. And then uh, the other part of Humans vs Zombies. So you know, at, at at my school, Goucher was a very small school. We had like fifteen hundred students, and by the time we graduated. Like 600 kids were playing each game. So it was more than like a third. Oh, wow. so it was just madness. Like you couldn't walk to class on the normal walking paths because you definitely, it was like a death What job. did the teachers think? <laughs> so, okay, well, that's super. I mean, some of the teachers were like fascinated by the game, like academically. And, uh-huh. um, and actually, a lot of different academics have like published on the game right. because it, it's right in front of them and it happens right. on college campuses. Some of the teachers hated it, right. um, you know, and they would write these, like, op-eds in the school newspaper just saying, like, how much they hated the game. Some of them loved it. Some of the teachers uh, played the game with us and would give kids cover right. and, like, let them escape through their, like, office and Were stuff. you allowed to attack someone during class or was class no fly zone? We created uh, safe zones in the academic buildings okay. and then that, that sort of that system got more defined, like, as the game went because... At first, we were just like, oh, everyone will use their best judgment. And, like, mm-hmm. the, you know, you won't play during class. But people totally play during class. Mm-hmm. So we had to make all these rules. It's so interesting hearing about it is that the process is exactly the same for your real-world 48-hour game 
as it is, or how long did matches last? Uh, Forty eight hours would be would be about the short end, and on the long end, like ten days. Right. So they can go, they can go for quite a while. So the process is exactly the same as it has been for me on digital games, which is you play it, you get it in real world players' hands, right. they learn how to exploit the rules, and then you change it. But it must be so hard when if a game takes ten days to play. You know, if I'm working on tuning a level, I'll play it a hundred times in a day. It was definitely like a crash course in game design, and none of us really knew what we were doing. So we started... It was, it was just really interesting. It was like as we became better, as we cared more about the game and got better at, at understanding all the different systems in the game and the player incentives and stuff, like, you know, we started also getting exposed to, like, um, game, game design theory and people who make games and stuff like that. And we just realized, like... Oh man, like people have really solved these problems and there's so much thought about this and stuff. The other thing we learned from Humans vs. Zombies that made it kind of a, a challenge, if you get tagged as a human, you're, you're done as a human. You play as a zombie for the rest mm -hmm. of the game. And if you die as a zombie, you're out of the game. Right. And the game is once a semester. And so each game is very important to people. They really care about their performance. So like if we make a bad call as game designers and we get a lot of humans killed, mm -hmm. that's unacceptable. Like where you're, it's not like a video game where someone can just reload. Like right. people really invest themselves. They train, you know, leading up to <laughs> zombies. So like it really matters to them. Like if we make um, the missions fair and if everything is balanced and, and the player incentives are right. So how did humans versus zombies break out of uh, Goucher and out of the college environment? I don't think we quite know to this day, like, exactly, it was like, you know, what, what lightning struck that it took off, but um, I, my theory is that uh, the game, Chris and Brad created the game the same year that Facebook became uh, available to schools that weren't in the Ivy League. Okay. So, like, the first year that people at Goucher got Facebook, or anyone in any school got Facebook that wasn't an Ivy League school, was, was when we invented HVZ. Uh, and I was, at the time, like, I was interested in design, and I was working in politics and, and kind of, like, grassroots organizing stuff, and I just cared so much about HVZ, and I loved it. Uh, I got involved, like, almost immediately in organizing the game at Goucher, and then I also saw this potential of, like, well, if we make it free and we put it online and we put a brand behind it and share it using, like, just, like, all these political campaigns and grassroots causes are doing, like, this thing could really take off. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think it was just the proliferation of Facebook. Like, everyone starting to learn how to use Facebook and tell stories about their lives and post interesting photos and stuff. You know, HVZ is just perfect for that. Like, you, you know, these people go... Even if you're not playing and you're at a school where it's played, it's just like everyone goes crazy for a week. So I would say, like, by my sophomore year of college, we started hearing stories of other schools in Maryland playing and, and um, schools where we had, like, Facebook friends playing and stuff like that. And then by the time we graduated, the game was played at about maybe about six or seven hundred different colleges and universities, as well as like public libraries, military bases, just neighborhood neighborhood kind of gatherings, game festivals, mm -hmm. uh, all different uh, kinds of places. What are some of the game festivals you brought it to? Right when I graduated, we got invited to a festival called Come Out and Play in New York, mm -hmm. run um, by uh, Catherine Hurdley. Yeah, I actually worked with. That was an interesting coincidence. And that was so much fun. That was our that was sort of our first exposure to the the broader world of like people who make games professionally. Uh, and I, that was also like we just started learning about like the kind of indie games scene, and that there mm -hmm. were people who were making these art games and and having the same struggles that we did, trying to make money on their game and and also preserve the integrity of the game and. That stuff is not an original problem that we invented, although at times it, it kind of felt like it. From there we went to, we caught the attention of IndieCade, and we went to IndieCade, 
And then uh, I remember the first IndyCade we went to, I think we were, our game was both bigger and was better organized than the actual IndyCade festival. So they brought us, <laughs> they asked us to sort of help uh, organize IndyCade. And then um, Joe... Uh, can you get me a spot at the next IndyCade? I forgot to apply. Yeah, yeah, I can actually. I think I, I, I'm sure like, I'm, I don't know, actually don't know. I mean, I'm sure if the application thing is still up, I'm sure you can, you can yeah, send it in. Yeah, that was a joke. I don't, I don't know if we'll be ready yet. Well, it's a super. I mean, Indicate is is a, is a great festival, but uh, so Joe from HVZ and and myself, we we actually to this day we're we're still like involved as as organizers in mm-hmm. Indicate, and the category of game that Humans vs Zombies is is called like big games. Mm-hmm. So this has helped create kind of a scene for big games at Indicate. And I would say like come out and play in Indicate are really the two festivals for for big games where right. you can get some attention for them. Were the festivals long enough to play a full game of Humans vs. Zombies, or did you have to modify the rules for the festival environment? We have gotten really good at modifying the rules for, like, specific groups of people in specific places. Mm -hmm. And actually, about one year ago, I made uh, this new kind of new version of the game that we call Cards vs. Zombies. Uh, The way it works is... It's for conventions, so we designed it really for Gen Con, because they asked us to run Humans vs. Zombies, but mm-hmm. they have a no-toy-guns policy and a no-running-at-Gen-Con policy. So right. you can't play Humans vs. Zombies with no toy guns and no running. But we created this sort of card game where you can play at conferences, and it's much more casual. You sort of like wear different colored bandanas mm-hmm. to indicate your affiliation, and you walk up to someone and you say, I'm tur- tagging you and turning you into a zombie, and then if they have sort of like Nerf Dart cards, they can hand you a card, and it's all very like low key and stuff. So we brought it to Gen Con last year and we sort of we weren't sure if it would preserve the inter the gameplay and the intensity of humans versus zombies and like people went crazy for it. I, yeah, I, I think can... it would it almost seems more fun if you're like you walk up to someone and you're like, I'm eating your brain. Yeah. Now. <laughs> it, it, it did. It just had even though it was so low key, like it just really had that certain level of intensity and then it just sort of like, you know, much like the zombie virus itself, when people see the game, they just like wanna be part of it and it right. just sort of grows, it sort of like spreads outwards, uh, at something like Gen Con. So I think we were actually the largest activity at Gen Con last year, and uh, we're going back this year um, with even more, uh, you know, stuff and, and missions and things like that. So it was really, it was tons of fun, and especially, like, there's a lot of little kids at Gen Con who, in some cases, just kind of get, like, dragged along. Like, they're right. not really, you know, there for, you know, Dungeons & Dragons or whatever, but uh, they went crazy for it, and it was, it was just really fun seeing everyone uh, playing all over the convention center. What sort of uh, activity does Human vs. Zombie have to this day? Well, the, the main thing, uh, we've sort of transitioned into a software development company. Uh, we, we, at Goucher, when the game started to get several hundred kids playing, it got to the point where like you didn't necessarily know, it, it wasn't just your friends, you didn't know everyone who was playing. So we had to start creating these solutions of like, how do you identify all the players? How do you make sure everyone can recognize each other? Uh, and we started building the software to organize the game, and now... That software is used by all of the, the hundreds of different schools that play Humans vs. Zombies, and it's a free hosted application that we develop and run uh, all internally. That's kind of our main function at this point, is just maintaining the software, building new features, um, studying how people play the game, and trying to put that into the software to mm-hmm. reflect you know people's like real real-world use cases. And then uh, advocating for the game. So in some cases, schools will ban Humans vs. Zombies or ban Nerf guns or something like that, and then... If the organizers at that school ask us to, we can become involved and work with the administration to kind of like broker a compromise. And usually we can, we're, we've been successful at getting the games uh, unbanned. 
As we talked, I discovered that just as my group of nerdy, antisocial friends became enthralled with Chicago's improv comedy scene, Max and the Cards Against Humanity group found any avenue they could into Chicago comedy. Although we both credit improv comedy and performance for teaching us basic social skills, it is clear that even in high school, the inventive Cards Against Humanity crew took it a step beyond anything I could have imagined. They used school funds to form an after-school comedy club, including field trips to local shows, school performances, and teaching sessions with some of their favorite comedians. It is this immersion in comedy and bond of friendship that would years later birth Cards Against Humanity. Now, your, your big hit is uh, Cards Against Humanity. What's the origin story there? How did that come to life? Uh, so the origin story for Cards Against Humanity is uh, all of the uh, the nerds in our year of uh, Holland Park High School. Mm-hmm. We're all very very good friends uh, with each other. Um, you know, a lot of us met. Like I met I met Elliot uh, on the playground in first grade. So like right. these friendships go like way back. And we always just sort of had um, you know whenever there was like a big event, you know like uh, like New Year's is kind of our big one. Uh, you know, none of us were going to get invited to any parties or anything. So we'd always just like have a party in someone's basement. Um, which is what you do yeah, in the, in the I'm suburbs. Familiar. Yeah, I'm uh, Partying in people's parents' basement. Um, and, I mean, in party, like I use the term pretty loosely, but right. we're all, being uh, the nerds we are, we're all kind of terrified of normal social interactions. Right. So we like to come up with a lot of activities so we all know how to behave. Um, so we <laughs> so we got really into, like, board, you know, we, we love, like, board games, uh, party games, that kind of stuff. We were also really into improv comedy, and we right. had that comedy club. At, Did you um, ever go to Improv Olympic? Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, Improv Olympic, uh, comedy sports, like all that. We were so into that stuff in high school. And then we at Helen Park High School, all of the cards guys, like all eight of us, we were in this thing called, we started this club called HPHS Comedy Club. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, this is the deep, this is deep yeah. cuts. No, no one ever gets, no one gets to hear the, the whole Helen Park High School history of this. So we, uh, so we, we, we really loved like stand-up comedy. It was like one of our favorite things to do is we would go to that CD store in uh, uh, Holland Park uh, by... Uh, CD City? Yeah. We would go to CD City and we'd go to the comedy bin and we'd mm-hmm. buy a new comedy album, you know, and they were like very mainstream. So it was a lot of like you know, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Dennis Leary, uh, Ellen DeGeneres. Like those were, those were like, you know, the, the big like 80s and, and 90s people who were still had some, some, you know, a lot of like mainstream popularity. Like we would buy their album uh, oh, George Carlin was mm-hmm. definitely our favorite, and we would um, take it back to someone's house and like sit in a room and like listen to the CD, and then we would just like dissect it. Like we'd be like, we would just become obsessed with it, and we would also buy like comedy books. Like George Carlin started writing these books, and we would bring them to the cafeteria and just like read to each right. other from the books and memorize them. So we we got like obsessed with with comedy and stand up comedy, and then we really wanted to go see stand up and improv in the city, but you couldn't if you're not 18, you had to have a parent go with you. And we quickly learned like how incredibly awkward it was to go with our parents because like you just didn't you know not a place you want to be with your with your parents. But we discovered you could like start a club at the school, and they would not only would they pay to send you places, like they would like put you on a bus and drive you to the city to go do stuff. But like the cooler teachers would be our chaperone, and they would take us. So oh, we okay. started like an actual club. We got money from the school to go see comedy in the city, and uh, we did that for you know a year or two. Me and uh, my friends, we used to go to the Improv Olympic for the midnight show, oh, where sure. you could actually get up on stage. How did you get in? I don't know. I th- maybe it was our junior and senior year. Oh, it's possible. Um, but like. We would go, and we thought we were funny. And I'm sure people, like drunk adults, were just laughing at these like. What's an example? What's an example? What's an example of a of a bit? 
that you guys had? Well, we would, because they would do just improv games live, so, and anybody from the stage could get up there. So, like, just like Bus Stop, or um, my favorite game was the one where it was Ding. It was just you do a scene, and somebody is ringing a bell, and whenever they hit the bell, you have to say a new version of your last line again. And that mm-hmm. was my favorite game. Like, I. Um, I just, I loved the Improv Olympic. The Chicago comedy, even though I had so little access to it, shaped my uh, personality so much. So it's so funny to hear that it's the same yeah, for you guys. Yeah, we were probably, I mean, we were probably going to the same. I mean, I think the Midnight Show was too late for us, but we were probably going to the same the same stuff. Eventually, the school caught on to us, and they're like, you can't just use all this money to go see <laughs> comedy in the city. Like, to take, literally have a school bus idling outside of Improv Olympic like, out in Wrigleyville on, like, a Friday night. Like, they're like, this is not an appropriate use of taxpayer money. Um, so you need to have, like, an educational component to your club. And right. we, we were like, all right, well, maybe that's it. And then we started thinking about it, and we were like, well... We could bring people to the school and we can learn things and then that would sort of keep the club alive right. so we could keep doing our trips. We contacted uh, Comedy Sports, which is one of the sort of more mainstream like uh, improv franchises that you can find in like any city. We got so lucky, we got the this guy Kane Collier, who's like the one of the funniest people I've ever met, who um, was so kind with us and like really like not condescending at all and like really taught us improv and taught us how to be funny and you know for a lot of people like you know you'd be like refining something you already know how to do and for us I think it was a lot of like here are some basic social skills like how to listen to people and like have a sense of does the audience understand what you're talking about these are things that no one had ever like sat down and taught us before (laughs) so that was very so that was really cool and then we started doing shows at the school like improv shows together um probably at the peak of the club we maybe had like 20 or 30 kids like it was never big or like popular or anything like that it was cool and it kept us busy and at one point we wrote a letter to Brian Regan who's like one of our stand-up a favorite stand-up comedians Mm -hmm. we're just like hey we we really like your your stand-up thing we have this club and and we'd love to meet you and sure enough he came to the school his agent said he would meet us one day and a limo pulled up outside the school and he like came upstairs and we sat in one of the English classrooms and he told us about comedy and like comedy writing and right. how hard it is and and you know it was just it was so cool like we this is like one of our favorite our favorite comedians he just like came to HPHS and spoke with us that's that's crazy so we've got eight uh, childhood friends basement dwellers comedy fans all hanging out on New Year's yeah um, so we had this whole history of doing you know improv <laughs> games and comedy writing and stuff together. And uh, we started just inventing games for ourselves, and mm-hmm. they gradually went from like improv to more structured things. Mm-hmm. So, this sort of precursor game to Cards Against Humanity was a game. Um, uh, it was kind of like Balderdash or uh, uh, Dictionary Dabble. So, it's like you'd ask a question to someone would, would ask a question to the group and be like, "If I could only eat one food for the rest of my life, what would it be?" Mm-hmm. And then everyone would submit a fake answer as though they were that person, and that person would submit their real answer. And then you'd go around and the person would read all the answers and then you'd go around and try and pick the real one. So if someone guessed your fake answer, you got a point. Or if you guessed the real one, you'd get a point. And that was we that was hilarious to us. And like we used our, you know, comedy skills to like come up with hilarious answers for each other. But as soon as we tried to play with like friends or girlfriends, it was it would completely fall apart because they didn't understand our inside jokes and right. they didn't understand our personalities and you know they weren't they weren't part of that that group. So cards kind of came about as an attempt to make it more structured so you had the questions and the answers. And then it gradually we 
I've discovered like the pick two mechanic and the fill in the blank mechanic and stuff like that. So if someone's never played Cards Against Humanity, how how would you describe it? What's it like to play? Uh, so it's a really really simple game. There's actually not not much game to it at all. Uh, someone asks a question to the group. There's a deck of black cards that are all questions, and they can be fill in the blanks or just open ended questions. And then everyone has a hand of white cards that have answers in them, and everyone just plays their funniest answer, and the judge picks a winner. Mm-hmm. And then in the the you know we've written the rules to be very minimalist. We don't say when the game ends uh, or or who wins the game. So we sort of teach you how to play, and then leave it open. And then mm-hmm. people, halfway through, they realize like, oh, we have no idea when to stop playing or something. And we've put in some cues like that to tell people, you know, don't take it too seriously as a game. It's more about the like the the comedy experience and right. stuff like that. So that's pretty much all there is to it. It's right. it's just a, a good social experience for people. Right. It's been described as apples to apple, politically incorrect apples to apples, right? So what's a, what's a good example of uh, one of your favorite questions and some of the answers you might hear to that playing the game? Probably our favorite card right now is in her new made-for-TV movie, Hannah Montana Must Struggle with Blank. That's it. <laughs> That's our that's our favorite one, and like we love that. I think I think we all love that card because the word struggle does so much right. does so much work there. It and tells then, a story. Yes, and then you could have like she has to struggle with the Jews, or she has to struggle with oh I don't know any sort of like absurd like you know the the GOP, or she has to struggle with fabricating statistics, or mm-hmm. she has to struggle with endless soup salad and breadsticks, like just like any sort of like, any of life's problems become like this I, huge ordeal for... Endless soup salad and breadsticks is a very comedic, I've... Well, it's, such a, it's like, it could be delicious, or but it also has that like, it's like part harrowing existential threat of like, right. oh my god, they never end, like... <laughs> Oh man! You know, I read before uh, before I got here a little bit about how your card writing process is kind of inspired by one of my favorite episodes of This American Life, where they go into the Onion writers' room. Do you want to talk a little bit about what it's like to create new cards? Yeah, at this point, we've I, I think we've systematized the process pretty well, which is which is good for us. Like we really we thrive on like kind of like structure and systems, but for a while it was just total chaos uh, and. So I would say, like, generally the way it works is, you know, the first thing is we're not all in the same city. We're all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's very, there's eight of us who write the game together, and it's very important that we all have an input on the game. Like, we we, we also really, we don't have any hierarchy in the company. So, like, mm-hmm. we only make decisions editorially about the game based on consensus. And if even one person is, like, really uncomfortable or really objects to a card, that's, we'll just discuss it until everyone's happy and compromise until everyone's happy with it. So the system we've kind of built to accommodate that is uh, we sort of have these three spreadsheets. So the first one is the hopper, and the hopper is just like a brain dump. It's like any funny thing that, you know, like a, like a school bus idling outside of a mm-hmm. comedy club is like a really funny image to me. Right. That might wind up on the hopper later, even though it's not quite ready. Mm-hmm. Then um, every week we have these Google Plus Hangouts where we do an eight-way video chat with all eight of us, and we'll go through the ho- and then one person becomes the card czar, and they take cards from the hopper and they try to pitch them to the group. Like mm-hmm. they take cards that they like, uh, not necessarily cards that they wrote. Mm-hmm. It's all anonymous who wrote what, so we never we never really know uh, who who wrote what. And they you you just take cards that you like from the hopper and try and find the the gems. And you pitch them to the group and you try and sell them. And the group tries to pick them apart. Like, okay, here's all the problems with this. Mm-hmm. And then we'll argue about it. And either we'll, we'll all like it right away or we'll, 
we won't like it right away, or sometimes we'll try and workshop it and we'll turn, we'll fix the card or transform it into something completely different. Sometimes in our conversation about the card, we'll come up with a completely new funny idea that then winds up mm-hmm. can, can that we like for the game. So then anything that makes it through that process that the group approves goes under the shortlist. And the shortlist are sort of like a list of ideas that have been discussed and approved that we can use in the future. Mm-hmm. And then about two or three times a year, we have a retreat where we all get together in the same place. So sometimes we meet in this office. We just did a retreat in this, like, we got this, like, beach house in Michigan, and we were there for, like, eight days, just, like, nonstop working on the game. Uh, and then that's where we'll take the what's in the shortlist, and we'll bring it into the game. We'll, we'll finish the writing. We'll test everything. Uh, we'll have our final arguments over what makes it or not, and then it'll go into an expansion or go into the game. We heard that This American Life episode called Tough Room, and it's the Onion writers pitching each other's stories, and, like... That's totally the vibe of, of the meeting because it's like people you'll get up with jokes that you think are hilarious like mm-hmm. I can't like I can't believe these aren't in the game like I found these like gems in the hopper and you'll start pitching them to the group and everyone's just like no I don't like it. Do you have a, an example of a gem that you picked when you were the card czar that just fell completely flat? Speaking of this American Life, mm-hmm. I had a black card that I absolutely loved, which is uh, it's this American Life. Each week we take uh, several. Well, how does it go? It's like. Uh, Spring in Life, each week we bring you several different stories, stories about a theme. The yeah, yeah, this week, blank. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. Like, it was funny with everything, and mm-hmm. no one else liked it. Everyone was just like, this makes no sense. Like, none of the cards are any different. We call those a, a play your funniest card card. So it's just mm-hmm. like, it doesn't matter what you play. It's just like whoever puts in the, the weirdest thing from their, their hand will win. Um, so that was, over my strong objection, that was, uh, that was trashed. Do you have an example of a card that started off and got workshopped? Like, this is where it started, then we workshopped it, and it finally turned into this, and kind of, these are, like, that's an insightful game design decision, even you just said, that if a, if a question is play your funniest card, that's not really fun. Right. Um, let, me, let me try to think of, like, uh, let, me, uh, let me go grab a deck with y'all. Sure. I'll be inspired if I flip through some cards. Max just un- unshrink-wrapped a new copy of Cards Against Humanity that I'm sure someone out there, as, as they're hearing this, goes, No, I've been on pre-order for... <laughs> we're, uh, we're in stock now, You're man. in stock now? Yeah, we've solved the, the supply. <laughs> let, me go through, let me go through these, and we'll find some, we'll find some examples here. Well, let me start with, exp- with our new expansion. These are the ones that are, like, fresh in my, mm. in my mind. Maybe I'll... All my years of playing Magic the Gathering, it's still such a it's it's it warms my heart to open a new stack of cards smells, no matter what smell they are. Good. how's that smell <laughs> card smell oh okay well here's this is an easy one okay so we came up with this like how did this even start so sometimes when we start to get really wordy when we're writing something mm-hmm. and someone loves a joke and it's like we just they desperately try to save it by like adding like words and adjectives to it we all frown on that like we really like the like the the like micro writing of the games like mm-hmm. this card is great just cock right like it's so it's so it's so small it's so short or this one is good too a cop who is also a dog like there's no <laughs> there's no frills to that writing and it really like when you see it it just makes you laugh and and we we like that micro copy mm-hmm. um and so we have this joke of like if someone starts wording up a card like just adding all this stuff to it that we'll start like we'll just start like tagging stuff onto the end of it like 
oh, it's like this thing happens, and then also, you know, your your son forgets who you are, and God turns his back on the world, and like, you know, your dog <laughs> you just starts pile on. yeah, your dog starts speaking Spanish. Like, we all just start like yelling out this stuff, like trying to call them out and wording it up. Mm-hmm. And I think at some point we had this this idea of like. We were trying to think of, like, what's the point of, like, if you go through YouTube or, like, you know, you're on Reddit and you see, like, all these, like, the same memes and the same, like, cat videos, like, over and over. Like, what's it all for? Like, what's it all going to? And, like, we had this idea of, like, the final cat video. The cat video that's right. so funny that, like, it's the, it ends all future cat videos. That, that sounds to me like a Onion headline, like... World's greatest cat video ends production. Yeah, we're, do- we're done now. No, yeah. no new cat videos like ever need to be recorded. Um, and uh, uh, I think at, at some point, like just that idea was so big that trying to fit it into a white card, we just were wording it up, and someone mm-hmm. was like, "Oh, this cat video is so cute that your eyes roll back and your spine slides out your anus." And we were like, "That's it. It's it's in." <laughs> and that's how that card came about. This one's a pretty good story too. We were just like we love the like the like Gary Fieri like inventing these like horrific like food abomination right. things and like then the appetizing words they try to put in there. So we were trying to write our own and we had like at one point it was like the Redeemer, a, a triple fried crispy meat sack from Chili's. <laughs> and we had a huge fight of like, are people going to think it's real? Is it funny enough? And we started adding these words like, a, oh, it has to be like a chipotle, right. a zesty chipotle with ranch and like starting to add all this stuff. Like the, the joke isn't funny unless someone would actually think, I, I need that. And yeah, or like, it's like you, you, you start questioning yourself. We eventually went on the Chili's website to like, mm-hmm. for inspiration, to like see like, how do they actually write this thing? Like the hero ad on the website was for this thing called the quesadilla explosion salad from Chili's and we were like that's go- we can't comedically comedically that's a real food item that they actually made so like comedically it was focus tested yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> comedically we cannot improve on that there's nothing we could do to improve on it and we even kept their like trademark and right. registration symbols in there that's awesome um, so that's how that's where that one came about this one came about from a Louis C.K. joke of, like, mm-hmm. just ways you could die. And he's like, you could just get shot by, like, a gun guy. And that just <laughs> killed us. We just were talking about that. And someone was, you know, at, we, we turned that into actually getting shot for real. And a lot of this stuff is just, like, we'll, we'll take a kernel and we'll just, like, argue about it forever until, uh, uh, until we get something. Max did not set out to become a professional game designer. In fact, his background is in web design and organizing on political campaigns. However, lessons he learned while working on the Obama campaign in 2008 have been critical to the success and longevity of both Humans vs. Zombies and Cards Against Humanity. Tight control of branding and messaging, the value of design and image, having a highly polished, professional-looking presence, and using the web as a distribution tool have all contributed to the success of these two games that have defied traditional gatekeepers and distribution methods. Your background, as you said, was in doing web work for grassroots organizing for political campaigns, Uh right? And uh, how did that apply to, well, how did you guys decide to take Cards Against Humanity to Kickstarter, and what lessons did you apply from that grassroots organizing background uh, that helped it become this smash success? Yeah, um, so I had two uh, two sort of points of experience that, that I think helped us with, um, or helped me with, with my responsibilities for cards, which I, I do a lot of the sort of like PR and, and marketing and, and um, the public-facing uh, side of stuff. Uh, so the first thing was um, my experience with Humans vs. Zombies and learning how we spread that game and gave people tools to take 
humans versus zombies and organize it themselves, like mm-hmm. uh, trying to make those tools really good and, and easy and understandable. And also, like, the other thing we learned from that was, like, speaking about humans versus zombies in values language, because it not only did that show people how to play and, and show them the mechanics of it and, and what we believed about it, but also, like, why we cared about it and why we were passionate about it. Not only did that help them, like, do what we did in the best way, but it also gave them a good framework for inventing new things. Um, so it created this whole creative community around it. It was just, like, learning what we believed about the game and what our values were um, for humans versus zombies. And then the other thing was the um, – I, my I worked on the Obama campaign – in 2008, and I just learned a lot about the different, some of these different, um, you know, internet technologies and, and how important good design was uh, and cohesive branding, how you could take a candidate like Barack Obama, who had a ridiculous name who no one's ever heard of, and um, by having this, like, really uh, tight, consistent, professional branding that was way better than historically anything in U.S. politics – um, it made people pay attention to him. Like that was a huge part of people just taking that guy seriously and and opening their minds and enough to the seriousness of him to hear what he was saying and and hear that they agreed with it. Um, so that was those were really important lessons for Cards Against Humanity. Um, so for us, like we uh, we spent a long time uh, designing the game and branding it and and coming up with a look that we really felt made the cards funny. You know we. Uh, the, the like the, the black and white Helvetica and, and you know each each of these cards is individually typeset too. Like we do, we really care a lot about the. There's very little on these cards. They're sort of like super minimalist design. Um, there's really just black black Helvetica on a white card. So like we, all could, the, we could really uh, uh, alienate the listeners right now by starting to talk about font kerning. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, honestly, this is a thing that for game developers, uh, you know, we were we had an Ouya, we were playing with an Ouya in here last mm-hmm. night and like. The font kerning on the Ouya is fucking terrible. It, it's I swear it makes it look cheap. Like there are other there are good title screens. There. Have you seen an Ouya yet? Uh, no, I, I think mine's waiting for me when I've been gone for a month. So oh, I think when I get yeah. back home, it'll be at my apartment. It's like you'll see when you turn it on. But take mm-hmm. a look because there are title screens that are otherwise have good design. Like there, mm-hmm. it's like a nice color gradient. It's really simple. They've taken a lot of the like cruft out. Like in a way, it's a good. I think it's a good progressive menu design. But then you look at the titles, and the kerning is horrible. Like we, I mean, granted, we had like a bunch of designers in here, but we right. were like, this is looks cheap. It looks like a Chinese knockoff of a game system just right. because like they have no idea how the English language works and how the eye scans letters. Like, so it, that stuff does it does matter a huge deal, especially if it's if it's a minimalist design like like Cards Against Humanity or the Ouya. Mm-hmm. It, if the type isn't perfect, it stands out and it makes it look like it was done mechanically or or cheaply. Um, so that stuff matters so much to us, and also like a very, we also found that like a very professional execution of the type and the brand, uh, as well as like the Helvetica typeface, which is typically Helvetica as a typeface. It's very corporate, safe typeface that people pick if they're trying to convey a sense of authority and normalcy. Mm-hmm. So it's the typeface of the IRS. It's the typeface of Crate and Barrel. It's right. like this is this is a normal uh, corporate situation. Right. You know, nothing to see here. Uh, you, you it made chose it s- the right font to enhance the humor. Exactly. The it made it so funny. If you're looking at a card that just says, like, you know, uh, an all-midget production of Shakespeare's Richard III, and it's, like, typeset in a very <laughs> official Helvetica, right. it's so absurd. It's so funny. It's like, it's like it just, it really creates a funny contrast. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, that, that stuff I learned from the Obama campaign, just how, how powerful it is and how important it is. And, um... You know, also little details like we thought a lot uh, doing doing design and, and web stuff for the Obama campaign about 
the holistic experience of the user. So it's like, you know, people are coming on the website, let's say, to look up a policy of, of what Obama believes about this or that. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to separate, like, the content of the website from the way it's presented. And if they have a hard time getting there, or if there's pain points, or if it's an amateur execution, it's going to color their views on the whole rest of the thing. And we could see that with data looking at the conversion rates of how many people leave the website, how many people sign up for the email thing, you know, all that stuff uh, was was super systematized. Uh, you know, we watched the data really closely and you could see how, how much the, the, the design and the, the entire experience mattered to people in their perceptions. Um, so for cards, like we just have, and for humans versus zombies, like um, I've just learned to care so much about every little detail, um, you know, making sure like everything is, is professionally, taking nothing for granted, making sure everything is really nice, having, you know, good packaging, uh, um, you know, for, for games and stuff that I work on, um, making sure that the design and the menu screens are great. You know, all that stuff is part of the experience that people have with the game. And you can, you can lose them there or color their perception. Even if it's a great game, they can perceive it as being like a cheap and unprofessional game mm -hmm. if, if those details aren't right. When you first put it up on Kickstarter, uh, how did you spread the word? How did you help get backers to something that a bunch of dudes were playing in the basement? Um, well, the, so the first thing we did was we released the game online for free almost about a year before our Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. uh, and it built up a little following. Like just, we, we put it up for free. We tried to make a, a nice little professional website. Uh, mm -hmm. We let people submit their own card ideas to us. Mm -hmm. And um, we took emails to sign up. So it's like, hey, if we ever do anything more with this game... Right. Feel free to put your email in here. It wasn't like a requirement to download the game. You have to do it. It was just an option. And it was under Creative Commons license? Yeah, that's right. We, we licensed the whole game under Creative Commons. Um, so over that year, it just started... It just picked up a little bit of like a cult kind of following. Like, uh, you know, it, it, there was a popular thread on something awful that really blew us up of like people really enjoying the game. Reddit was just starting to become really popular mm -hmm. and it, it had gotten some, some, some fans on Reddit. Uh, so by the time we went to Kickstarter, we had maybe a couple hundred people on our email list. We had um, a couple thousand people had downloaded the PDF of the game and made print-and-play versions of it and were, were playing at bars and stuff. You know, we were hearing stories of, like, the bars and cities that we didn't live in that had homemade copies of Cards Against Humanity, like, in the bar, and there was, like, these house copies. Right. So, like, it was already this sort of, like, underground cult thing going into the Kickstarter. Uh, and that that definitely helped us. And then throughout the Kickstarter, we kept the the whole game available for free on our website. So you could either buy it on Kickstarter or download it for free. And then to this day, it's still up there. We the entire game is is available as a free download on our website. So that's really been one of the most important things for us. For people who don't know us or didn't know who we were, you know, we had no credibility. We weren't established as comedy writers or game designers. You know, for people who were very skeptical of like. Could we pull this off? Would this idea be funny? Would the writing be good or bad? You know, we bought ourselves a lot of credibility by uh, both making the game available for them to look at and, and make their own determination and also just like the confidence of saying like, this thing is great and we're so sure it's great that you could, you know, download the whole thing and you'll still want to buy it. Do you think you're a group of comedy writers who make games or a group of game designers who like comedy? I think you get a different answer from, from everyone in the group who you, who you ask about that. I think that the comedy writing is actually really critical to cards. Like if, we change, if you change the game design, like we have all these like alternate rule sets in here um, and those change the, the gameplay and, you know, it's more or less, it's like, it's the same game. Like, you know, it's not, it's not radically different even if you switch mm -hmm. up the rules. 
Uh, it's still fun. You still are laughing at the same jokes. But if we play with, like, fan, there are fan expansions and fan cards and stuff. And if you start to mix those in and the jokes aren't funny, like, it could totally ruins it. There's just mm-hmm. nothing left there. So I think in this case, like, the comedy writing and the, the game design are kind of inseparable, but also, like, it's definitely writing forward. When was it clear that you guys were not just going to be able to do a print run of this and have a couple hundred people play it, but that Cards Against Humanity was a breakout success? I guess when, so when we did our Kickstarter, we, we, obviously the cost to manufacture each set was less than what we were charging. So we had mm-hmm. extra money and we decided to take all of our extra money and put it into a big print run. So we printed more sets than, mm-hmm. than we needed to, to fulfill our Kickstarter order. And we, we made them available after the Kickstarter. Uh, we used the service called FBA Fulfillment by Amazon. Uh, we're basically, we own all the inventory. We're not like selling it to Amazon, but then they ship it out for us and stuff. And we still use them. It's a really good shipping arrangement for us. And we priced the game at $25, which gives us the free Am- Super Saver, like mm-hmm. Amazon shipping, which is, which is awesome for us, good for our customers. But it also had this added effect. Uh, when we put the game up for sale after a Kickstarter, we got ranked on the Amazon sales rankings. Oh, wow. So as soon as it went up, it was like there were all these people who wanted it right away after our Kickstarter and we started climbing up. We were like, okay, now we're, we, we became like the top selling uh, card game mm-hmm. and then we became the best selling game. And then there's the super category for all that stuff is toys and games. And we even reached like the number two or three toy or game on all of Amazon. Like Skylanders, Giants, and then cards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It was like, um, I mean, and we 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 started beating other popular party games that we that we liked, and we at that point we were like, okay, this thing might might go somewhere. Like, right. there's some demand for this. Now that being said, like I'm definitely the pessimist in the group, and like anytime we sell a set, I'm always like, well, that was a good run. Like that's the last one we'll ever sell. So I think it's gonna, I think it's done at any minute, and I'm I'm. I'm I'm excited to start working on other games and uh, mm-hmm. uh, other projects and stuff. Got it. So you guys are still working on new expansions, taking it around to different conferences, that sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, we're we're working on some new products as well, uh, some new stuff that we haven't done before. Um, you know, last year for the holidays, we made this holiday expansion pack, and it was pay what you want model, mm-hmm. so you people could pay anything and even nothing, right. and we would mail them this physical thing for free, which obviously cost us money. But we were just curious, and and we wanted to see what happened, and. Um, it got a ton of attention for the game, and we had a lot of fun building the pay-what-you-want software mm-hmm. and organizing it. By all respects, we definitely should have lost all of our money doing that, but it actually went really well, and we raised about $70,000 in profit, and then we donated all of that to charity. That was like one of the most fun things we've ever done with this, and it got mm-hmm. tons of news uh, coverage. So we're working on kind of a, a follow-up stupid thing to do for the holidays this year. Uh, that's, cool. that's already... Uh, well in progress. Got it. And you're working on uh, new new game ideas, new product ideas. Um, yeah, we are. We have. A, we're working on a couple new a couple new projects. Uh, we're actually working on a, on a, on a video game, digital game as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of a in the same vein as Cards Against Humanity, like very writing centered game. Uh, and then I've got a ton of other different game projects and stuff that I'm I'm interested in pursuing and. Um, also, just very interested in the, the sort of indie game scene right now, and, and um, supporting other other independent developers out there, and, and people who come after us, and um, mm-hmm. trying to be good good patrons of, of the indie scene and good uh, 
you know, we feel we feel very indebted to all this infrastructure that was built before Cards Against Humanity came along that, that has really helped us. So we just want to continue building that infrastructure and supporting what's out there. And um, I have to imagine that you get a lot of interest or have gotten a lot of interest from corporate game development entities. And yeah. what's what's that experience like? Well, um, pretty much everyone. I mean, every major publisher um, uh, for board games has, has contacted us, and a lot of major retailers, you know, Target or Toys R Us or whatever, and we've turned them all down just because it doesn't financially it doesn't make sense. You know, we so when we did this, we didn't know we were we didn't really know much about the the world of board games or in, indie games. Like it was still very new to us, and we didn't really understand that there were these systems and rules that you're supposed to utilize like you're supposed to get a publisher and a distributor and get into retail so people mm-hmm. can learn about your game well, we didn't no one told us that stuff and right. we didn't know that was kind of the rules that you were supposed to play by so we just built all our own infrastructure like you know we're we're hackers and, and developers and um, I really like doing the, the PR side of stuff like I have a lot of fun with that and building the brand and that so like we just kind of made our own parallel infrastructure and I think it caught people by surprise like I think you know the the video games industry has really been shaken up by Steam and XBLA and all this stuff, and mm-hmm. and um, suddenly these publishers have lost a lot of their influence, and I think right. people are scrambling. Like, and video games, this has been going on for several years, like since really since Steam became um, kind of mainstream. Uh, but for board games, it's brand new. I mean, I think we're one of the first board games to kind of break out of the the very gatekeepery like big big players um, who control what games get into retail mm-hmm. so um, it's been it's been an interesting experience and you know we have we keep you know we'll talk to like Toys R Us or, or Target or whoever Walmart or whoever like <laughs> doesn't seem like it should be I know Toys right? R that's, like, right? that's always the first thing we ask is like are you sure about this but you like, sure like right next to the leapfrog I know like, yeah. cards against humanity well, people, people want them man it's, it sells so they, you know, they look <laughs> right. at Amazon and we're, we're we have the we're the number one two you know, we have right. the game in three expansions. We're the number one, two, three, and four best-selling, top-rated, and most wished-for toys and games on Amazon. Right. So, like, these stores see that and they're like, "All right, well, we got to get in the store." And like, we'll some, you know, we'll talk with them and we'll say like, "How how would this work?" And you know, how what cut would you take? And how mm-hmm. would we creatively, you know, label it and brand it and everything? And like, it just never makes any sense. Like, why would we? Just it makes no sense to us. Like why, you know, the, like we'd have to make creative compromises to work with those people, uh, which is the most important thing. And also, like, it's terrible for our business. Like, why would we give them half of a sale when we're? Ha- it's much better for us to sell it directly right. to the customer and control that experience. Like, we can make sure a customer has a great experience, and who knows what kind of experience they'll have if they're buying it in some, you know, big store. Yeah, it almost sounds like uh, Louis C.K. versus Ticketmaster type deals. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, with thanks to the tools of distribution and thanks to fulfillment by Amazon and everything, you don't you don't need to get in Target to sell. Well, I wish I wish I could say that was like a like a master plan of ours that we like right. we like orchestrated this thing and we totally didn't. It was a complete accident. Like we just mm-hmm. didn't know what else to do. But it's worked out so well. It's it you know we I just don't see why we would why we would change at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, there's other you know I hear I don't we don't go to any like industry. The only conferences we generally go to are things where we can hang out with with game players so like Gen Con, PAX, things like that. 
but uh, I hear about these like industry conferences and they're having like panels like you know how to what what does the Cards Against Humanity business model like mean for the industry and stuff. <laughs> so like it's definitely like I think it's definitely shaking things up. Um, and we're trying. We're we're I'm definitely. I'm going to start doing a. Uh, I'll start doing a case study on Cards Against Humanity yeah. just so I can be one of those people, and then you can like go into the audience and throw something at. You. Yeah. It'll right. Like <laughs> it's flattering and and it's cool that people are taking notice, but also like the tools of authorship. This happened to video games early, as you know, there were like things like Unity and and uh, uh, you know, game even like Game Maker and stuff yeah. like that. Like it just opened up game development to all these new people. So you have all these new voices and all these new people making games. Like, of course, if you don't provide a way for them to sell their indie games, like they're going to build it themselves. And if the games are good, people will favor that over the traditional distribution methods. And now. I would say the equivalent for board games is, you know, is Kickstarter and crowdfunding because mm-hmm. it used to board games are expensive to make. They have big costs. Unlike a video game where you're really just paying for people's time and, and skill, you need to pay for people's time and skill, and then you also need to print these expensive games. Um, so there are huge costs and barriers to entry that have traditionally kept people out, except for these big companies, uh, and given these big players in board games a lot of power mm-hmm. well now anyone can make a board game on Kickstarter like if the public likes the idea if, if you release it for, as a print and play version and you can make it on your home printer yeah. try it out see if you like it you know I'll, I'll give someone 50 bucks for a game on Kickstarter if I like the look of it and you know if I think it's cool so people are making tons of money um, you know we, we raised on Kickstarter we raised $15,000 for Cards Against Humanity which was huge it was like three times what we asked for and we were blown away by it and at the time it was one of the biggest funded games on Kickstarter Mm -hmm. and now like obviously video games are multi-million dollar campaigns on Kickstarter but the best board games are like they're raising half a million dollars now for for good board games so like it's totally there was that dice one that somebody raised like tons of money just for high quality dice yeah um, components uh, that's I mean that's another thing too is like there are custom components and systems that let People use dice and fit minis mm-hmm. and stuff like that to make their own game systems. But, like, uh, two games this year, uh, Story War by Brad O'Farrell and uh, Machine of Death by David Malky, like, those games each raised about half a million dollars. And they're really, like, wildly creative mm-hmm. party games. Like, I really think they, either of those could be the next Cards Against Humanity. And, uh, you know, I, I think they're both pursuing, like, alternative distribution and stuff like yeah. that. So, like, people are... It's the same thing that happened to video games, and, and it caught all of the publishers and stuff by surprise. It's- to close it out, you said you're kind of the PR guy on the team. You really enjoy it. Um, you talked a lot about the importance of brand identity and controlling the design of your product. Um, what other advice would you have for indies out there? about how to market themselves and the importance of marketing themselves. Because I know it doesn't come naturally to everybody when you're talking about an industry that's largely populated by guys like us who spent a lot of time in basements and had to learn social skills by playing comedy sports. Right. So the first thing is I would say um, part of making a game, just like you need to understand what are the mechanics of the game or the tension of the gameplay, like you kind of need to know as a game developer, like what, what you believe about your game and what makes it special. Um, a lot of people will make games and then they have no idea like what they like about it or what it means to them. Um, so I think there needs to be, I, I would say that's a lot of the artistry of making a game. And I think developers need to do a little more work to think of themselves as artists, to, be, to make meaningful art that, that where they can say, here are my values as a designer, here's what I'm trying to convey to the player, here's what this game means to me. 
you know, you don't necessarily need to like shout that at people, you know, you don't have to be hand-fisted with it, but you need to know yourself because that will inform how you talk about the game and, and what the game means to you and, and how, what it looks like and how you market it and how you package it and what the menus look like. Like that stuff should all flow from the same values that inform the gameplay and the, uh, you know, the sound and, and the mechanics of the game. Uh, not, not enough game developers um, spend time thinking about why they believe in their games and what they mean to them. And the other thing I would say is I think um, indie game people uh, tend to worship at uh, like platforms. Like they get obsessed with like getting on Steam Greenlight, getting on uh, in a humble bundle, you know, getting on PlayStation Network, you know, whatever it is. I don't think platforms matter as much as people think they do. And I think that Not you can. Anymore. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely going in that direction. You can make your game unspecial by being obsessed with a platform. You know, some of the most special games in the last couple of years, uh, like like Minecraft, for example, they self-distribute. If you want their game, you have to go on their website and make an account with them and buy it right from the game designer. I think that's really cool. I think that is a huge part of what made Minecraft so special. I mean, now, obviously, you can get it anywhere, but um, they they first went through the pain of distributing their own software and, and having relationships with all of their users, doing their own customer service and support. That's something incredibly important. Like, you can't buy that, that experience and that relationship with your players. If you've not yet experienced the dark comedy of Cards Against Humanity for yourself, you can download a print-and-play PDF or order a retail set at cardsagainsthumanity.com. To hear about Max's upcoming projects, you can follow him at Max Temkin on Twitter. The Game Dev Life Podcast is brought to you by Quarter Spiral, currently developing Enhanced Wars, a multiplayer-first turn-based strategy game for PC, Mac, Linux, and web browser. Enhanced Wars is coming to Kickstarter in the fall of this year. For the latest on Enhanced Wars, as well as future podcasts and other Quarter Spiral news, follow us at Quarter Spiral on Twitter and check out our website, quarterspiral.com.